You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. For those of you listening for the first time, this is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with lighthouses. History, preservation, literature, movies, navigation, really anything you can think of that relates in some way to the subject of lighthouses. On this edition, we'll be talking with Russ Rowlett, who is the webmaster of the Lighthouse Directory, one of the oldest and most useful lighthouse-related websites on the internet. And we'll also be talking with Jeff Zappin, a waterways management specialist for the Coast Guard in the state of Washington. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, a photographer, teacher, and volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Thanks so much for being with me today in the famous Bluefish Boulevard Recording Studios here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Hello, listeners. I hope you enjoy this podcast that we have prepared for you. Michelle, you and I are both very involved with Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse is the only lighthouse on the mainland on New Hampshire's seacoast. It's on a Coast Guard station in Newcastle, New Hampshire, just about 10 minutes from here. We had it painted this summer, which is really exciting. In fact, the scaffolding just came down uh, last week. It is very exciting, Jeremy. I got to see it for the first time yesterday at the open house, all painted and beautiful. She looks wonderful. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's so, so exciting. Again, uh, after nine years, last time it was painted was nine years ago, and uh, it's just a, a sight to behold. Fort Constitution is a neighbor of the lighthouse. It's also inside Coast Guard Station Portsmouth Harbor, along with the lighthouse. Because of some safety issues, the site has been closed at times this summer, but we uh, have our open houses every Sunday at the lighthouse, every Sunday afternoon. That's right, Jeremy. Every Sunday from 1 to 5. We also have a Sunset Lighthouse Cruise and Photo Workshop coming right up on August 17th. And we have some nighttime haunted tours coming up on August 31st and September 21st. We also have a Morning Lighthouse Cruise coming on September 14th. People can get more information on our website, www.PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. So let's get to our first guest, Michelle. Please help me tell our listeners about Russ Rowlett. Sure, Jeremy. When Russ Rowlett was growing up in Richmond, Virginia, his only exposure to lighthouses was climbing the old Cape Henry Lighthouse when his family vacationed at Virginia Beach. He earned a doctorate in math at the University of Virginia in the 1960s. After serving in the Army for two years as a computer programmer, he taught math two years at Princeton and then 13 years at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Starting in the early 1970s, Russ vacationed with his wife and eventually also with their son regularly on the Outer Banks of North Carolina at Nags Head. In 1987, he became director of the Center for Mathematics and Science Education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He retired from that position in 2011, although he continued to teach a few online courses until recently. Russ started his website, The Lighthouse Directory, in 1999, and it kept growing until, by 2009, it covered the whole world. The address of the site is ibiblio.org slash lighthouse. Again, the address of the site is ibiblio.org slash lighthouse. That's i-b-i-b-l-i-o dot o-r-g slash lighthouse. I had the opportunity to speak with Russ Rowlett on the phone in May. Let's listen to that conversation now. 
Okay, well, thanks so much for spending some time with me today, Russ. And it is great to finally get to talk to you because we've actually been corresponding for pretty close to 20 years, I would say. I probably uh, first got in touch with you not long after you first uh, started the uh, the Lighthouse Directory back around, probably right around the year 2000. So, again, thanks so much for joining me today, Russ. Well, I'm happy to do it. Glad to have the opportunity. What first inspired you to start the Lighthouse Directory? Well, it was the time when the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was relocated, which was the summer of 1999. That's 20 years ago. And everybody in North Carolina was excited about lighthouses at that time. And I said, well, I'm going to start a little website for lighthouses in North Carolina and maybe a few adjoining states. And from there, it just went on and on. It's one of those things where you want to go over the next hill and see what's there, and then over the next hill, and then over the next hill, and it took 10 years, and eventually it covered the whole world. So what was your uh, main goal when you first began the site? Well, I've always seen the site as kind of a research tool. I wanted to put in links where if you were interested in a lighthouse, you, I could give you the basics, and uh, then you could have links maybe to show you photos and other information. And so that's been my goal throughout, was to try to get as much information out for people as possible. Uh, both with what I had on the page and with the links. At this point, how many countries and how many lighthouses are, are now listed in the Lighthouse Directory? Okay, well, there are more than 21,000 lighthouses. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure the exact number today. It goes up a little bit every so often. Uh, I don't know how many countries there are, but I can tell you there are 722 pages of listings. And, of course, many countries have uh, more than one page, so there might be 250 or 300 countries. It's funny. I, you know, I, I lecture about lighthouses pretty often, and I, for a long time, I was I, I, at the beginning, I was giving some basics about lighthouses, and I was saying that there are over 10,000 lighthouses in the world. And fairly recently, I started saying there are over 20,000 lighthouses in the world, and I always say, tell people I know that because uh, a, a friend has a website, the Lighthouse Directory, which lists over 20,000 lighthouses in the world, so that's how I know there are that many. So, so thank you for providing that service. What would you say has been uh, for you the most fun part of uh, maintaining your, your website? Oh, well, I, I get to see so much of the world's coastlines, and uh, there are lots of places that are just wonderful to look at. I mean, New Zealand is such a spectacular place, and you just love to see it. So it, it's really satisfying to me. I, I can't go to these places, and but I feel like now I have some familiarity with them just because of the all, all that I've seen. So it's a form of uh, armchair traveling, in a it's way. It's definitely a form of armchair traveling. Yeah. What uh, now? You uh, you corresponded certainly with people in many of these countries to help get uh, some of the information. Yes. And uh, can you think of any memorable correspondence you've had with people in some of these countries, or, or maybe memorable questions or comments that that come to mind uh, over the years? Well, many many people have been helpful in sending uh, comments, suggestions, information, corrections because I often make mistakes. And uh, and photos, and of course, as you see on the website, there are many photos from uh, from other people. I, I don't know how to start listing them all. You know, some of the people who have been the, of the most help 
to the directory. Uh, Michelle Foran now unfortunately passed away. Yes. And uh, uh, Craig Anderson and I correspond with Alex Travis in, in Germany. He has a huge website, as you know. And uh, lots of these people have been very helpful. What would you say has been the most uh, frustrating part uh, for you for of maintaining the site? What's been the most difficult part of it? Well, the most difficult part is that there are areas where we just don't have information. Uh, right this moment, I happen to be working on uh, one of the pages for Indonesia. That's a huge country. It has hundreds of lighthouses. There's no good list. Half the location data is wrong, and it, it's really hard to deal with. And so, generally, if, if the information is good, I'm happy, and when it's not, it's a little frustrating. So, Indonesia's been one of the hardest uh, countries. I, I would imagine the Asian countries in general have been among the hardest countries to find information. Certainly, information in, in English has probably been very difficult. Yes, China is very difficult. Uh, it's interesting, Japan is quite easy. Uh, mm -hmm. The Japanese have many lighthouses. They love their lighthouses. There are lots of websites. Uh, Vietnam has, has good information. But many of the other Asian countries don't. Have you thought about uh, not that not that you're not you're you're not old or anything, but have you thought about uh, down the line the idea that maybe somebody else could possibly take over the site? Has there been any interest in that? Because it's it's such an enormous uh, resource, and uh, I would hope it could go on forever. Has there been any thought of of that uh, down the line? Yes. Well, of course, I hope that won't be needed right away. Uh, but the site recently moved, as I'm sure you noticed. It had been on UNC faculty web space, which you had to be UNC faculty to access. But now it's on iBiblio, which is still a service of UNC, but it's open to other people. And so theoretically, at least, somebody else could participate in... in uh, let me just ask you, uh, of course, two of your biggest passions have been mathematics for many years and, and lighthouses. Uh, do you see any connection between those two subjects? Well, it's tenuous, I guess. I, I have a uh, nose for numbers, and I can remember a lot of numbers and a lot of data, and, and that's certainly helpful in uh, doing lighthouse research. I can't say much more uh, of a connection than that. Uh, I was just wondering if you thought that your your interest in math somehow led into your interest in lighthouses in any way, or how, but your your interest in lighthouses goes back pretty far. I do re uh, really appreciate your time today, Russ, and I, I just want to say that your your website is uh, one of the greatest resources. That certainly, I know it's been such a such a help to me, and I, hardly a day goes by when I don't refer to it uh, in the course of my everyday work. Well, I'm glad you're making good use of the site, and of course, that's what I want. And uh, so, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. I've got it uh, bookmarked at the top of my browser all the time, so I'm always looking at it. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just part of my daily life. So thank you so much for all that you do, and I'm sure I speak for so many people out there. So thank you, Russ. Well, thank you, and I I've enjoyed our talk. Next, we're introducing a new feature on Lighthearted, the Mueller Report. Yes, you heard right. But our Mueller Report is completely non-political. Many Lighthouse buffs, I'm sure, are familiar with the name Bob Mueller in the Lighthouse world. Bob was the founding president of the Long Island chapter of the U.S. Lighthouse Society in New York. He has been involved in lighthouse research, education, lecturing, and preservation for 20 years. 
Bob has published two books of lighthouse history, and he's narrated countless tours and cruises. His full-time job is as a New York State building code official, and he's also a kitchen and bath designer, a lifelong animal rescuer, a guitarist and songwriter, and an avid mountain biker. In this first installment of the Mueller Report, Bob updates us on the restoration efforts for Stepping Stones Lighthouse, the westernmost lighthouse in Long Island Sound, a project in which Bob has been personally involved. Let's listen to Bob's report now. Hi, this is Bob Mueller from the U.S. Lighthouse Society's Long Island chapter. In this and future episodes of the Lighthearted Podcast, I'll be bringing you preservation news, special event listings, and history from not only my native Long Island, but also the rest of New York State, as well as New Jersey and Delaware. Today I want to talk a little bit about the Stepping Stones Lighthouse, which is in the early stages of a restoration effort. Stepping Stones is the westernmost lighthouse in the Long Island Sound. It's an offshore light and is visible from Great Neck, City Island, and the Throgs Neck Bridge. It was built in 1877 in a Second Empire style, made primarily of brick with a mansard-style roof. It was built offshore on some large rocks known as the Devil's Stepping Stones, which were visible only at low tide. When Finley Fraser lit the original lamp in 1877, it cast a red light through a fifth-order Fresnel lens. There was also a fog bell mounted on the front of the brick tower just below the lantern room. The lamp and lens were changed in 1932 to a fourth-order lens casting a green light, and this is the characteristic it maintains to this day. This was one of the few changes at Stepping Stones over the years. There also weren't too many exciting stories of shipwrecks, reported ghosts, or other happenings. There were, as happened at other offshore locations, of course, rescues of recreational boaters and isolation brought on by winter ice. The lighthouse was automated in 1964 and the Fresnel lens was removed. Over time, the structure has deteriorated. The furniture and interior finishes were removed, some cracks and leaks developed in the basement, the roof started to leak, and the brick chimney at the rear of the roof has collapsed. In 2008, stewardship of the lighthouse was transferred to the town of North Hempstead, but the town's administration during that period made no substantial efforts to stabilize the structure or plan for its restoration. Things changed in 2012, however, as the town's new administration joined forces with the Great Neck Historical Society and the Great Neck Parks District to restore the lighthouse. This committee reached out to others, including the U.S. Lighthouse Society, to help get the project rolling. I've been a member of this committee since 2015. It has been a slow but fairly steady effort since then. The lighthouse and its foundation have been professionally assessed, an informed preservation outline has been prepared, donations and grants have been received, special events and informational materials have been created, and a new dock for the offshore lighthouse is scheduled to be completed by mid-October. The cracks in the foundation have been studied, monitored, and found to be stable, so once the dock is completed, stabilization work can begin on the lighthouse itself. We believe we know the location of the 1932 Fourth Order lens and its brass pedestal, and hope to restore and display those artifacts once we confirm that the lens is actually from the Stepping Stones lighthouse. The committee is currently working with the town of North Hempstead to plan the next phase of work to be accomplished, and is preparing for its third annual 5K run to raise funds for the project, which will be on October 6th. So the Stepping Stones Lighthouse is moving in the right direction, but there's a great deal of work ahead. To learn more, you can visit SteppingStonesLight.com, check the Lighthouse's Facebook page, or email me at bob at uslhs.org for more information. Now here are the summer schedules for the Long Island Lighthouses that are open to the public. Montauk Point is open daily, 10.30 to 5.30, Saturdays and Sundays until 7 o'clock. Fire Island is open 9.30 to 6 p.m. daily. The Horton Point Light is open Saturdays and Sundays, 11.30 to 4 p.m. 
At Huntington Harbor, the boat to the lighthouse starts at 11 a.m. and runs continuously through the day, with the last boat departing at 3 p.m. sharp. The remaining tour dates for the summer are August 11th and September 8th. That's all I have for today. I'd like to expand the preservation news and event listings in the future episodes, so if you're a volunteer or staff member of a lighthouse group in New York, New Jersey, or Delaware, please email me at bob at uslhs.org, and I'll do my best to include your efforts in future episodes of the Lighthearted Podcast. Thanks for listening and for supporting Lighthouse Preservation. Now back to Jeremy. In past episodes of Lighthearted, we've talked about ancient lighthouses and early American lighthouse history. Today we're going to start doing something a little different, giving you vignettes about lighthouse keepers and episodes in lighthouse history. going to start by telling you about William Converse Williams, longtime keeper at remote Boone Island Lighthouse off the southern Maine coast. Boone Island is a barren pile of rocks about seven miles out to sea. Williams, who was known as Willie Williams, was a native of Kittery, Maine, and he went to Boone Island as second assistant keeper in 1885. He advanced to first assistant in late 1886 and then became principal keeper on November 21, 1888. He went on to serve 23 years in the position, earning $760 yearly without a single raise. Williams, who worked in construction as a young man, married Mary Abby Seward of Kittery. They had three children, Charles, Lucia Mabel, and Bertie, who died in childhood. A 1926 newspaper article described Williams, quote, he was a tall, spare man, dignified, and a refined gentleman of the old school. He had a soft, low voice, and his language was marvelous for its simplicity and purity. He had an optimistic disposition, nothing ever worried him, and he never got excited. He was neat and methodical, even in performing the simplest task." At the age of 90, Captain Williams recounted his experiences at Boone Island to Robert Thayer Sterling, author of Lighthouses of the Maine Coast and the Men Who Keep Them. Williams had many pleasant times at Boone Island, but he recalled the danger of the job. Quote, there were days when I first went on the station that I could not get away from the idea that I was the same as locked up in a cell. All we had was a little stone house and a rubble stone tower. When rough weather came, we didn't know as it would make much difference as to whether we went into the tower or not for a safe place. The seas would clean the ledge right off sometimes. It was a funny feeling to be on a place and know you couldn't get off if you wanted to, and tidal waves was all the talk in the early days. I was a young fellow and had never been placed in such a situation. When the terrible seas would make up and a storm was in the offing, I was always thinking over just what I would do in order to save my life, should the whole station be swept away." Williams described the experience of keeping watch in the tower during bad weather. As you sat there just watching your light, all the enjoyment you got was hearing the wind making a cotton mill din around the lantern. With such a noise and being so many feet up from the ground, the seas battering the rocks down below is utterly drowned out. One can hardly believe that after a storm you would find the big plate glass windows of the lantern covered with salt spray at that distance in the air. 
After some storms, the spray on the glass would be so thick and dimmed with bird feathers, it would require a whole day to clean things up before lighting up time, unquote. In an 1888 storm, Williams and the others on the island had to take refuge at the top of the lighthouse tower for three days. Compared to this storm, said the keeper, the famous Portland gale of November 1898 was just a breeze. In a January 1896 storm, Williams and his wife again took shelter in the tower as high seas completely surrounded the dwelling. The Portsmouth Herald published vivid details of another gale that began on January 31, 1898. The temperature was two below zero and thick ice formed on the lighthouse and other buildings. The ice was so thick that the fires and the stoves inside the dwellings had to be extinguished for a time because the chimneys were blocked. For nearly 24 hours, the winds blew at 75 to 100 miles per hour. The seas moved two water tanks, each weighing approximately four tons, about 75 feet. Quote, it was the hardest night we ever passed, said Williams, and no one slept on the island the entire night, unquote. Williams called the unusual sight of the island completely encased in ice, quote, one of the grandest sights, end quote, he had ever witnessed. The oil house belfry that held the fog bell was so clogged with ice that it took several hours of chopping with axes to get the bell working again. Next time, we'll tell you more about the amazing adventures of Willie Williams at Boone Island Lighthouse. Our next guest is Jeff Zappin. Jeff retired in December 2018 after 28 years as a chief warrant officer in the U.S. Coast Guard. His years in the Coast Guard included time in command of various cutters, including the Pendant, based in Boston, and the Sea Fox, based in Silverdale, Washington. He was the officer in charge of aids to navigation team Humboldt Bay, California, for three years, and for more than three and a half years, he was the aides to navigation officer and lighthouse coordinator for Sector Puget Sound, based in Seattle, Washington. Even though he's now retired from active duty, Jeff is still working for the Coast Guard as a waterways management specialist in Port Orchard, Washington. I had a chance to talk with Jeff during a visit to the U.S. Lighthouse Society's headquarters in Hansville, Washington, last January. Our conversation touched on the evolving nature of the Coast Guard's role with America's lighthouses and other aids to navigation. Let's listen to that conversation now. Jeff, uh, again, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, So your career in the Coast Guard included a number of years in the field of aids to navigation uh, and lighthouses. Were uh, aids to navigation and lighthouses something that interested you uh, from early on? I, I wouldn't say early on. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, major lighthouses that are easily accessible uh, along the Southern California coast, or at least non, not a lighthouse, that, the, the iconic lighthouses that most people uh, think of. But uh, it's it really didn't occur to me until I actually joined the Coast Guard and saw the, the beacons that they are, no pun intended, um, that the lighthouses are, but now that I think about it, as a child, I did a lot of backpacking, a lot of hiking in the Southern California area, a lot of peaks down there. There were a lot of lookouts, fire lookouts, and those were some of my most favorite hikes was to get to some place of a prominent point that had a manned tower. And uh, it's very symbolic that 
is that's what I enjoyed doing as a kid. Oh. And now here I am as a, with the career of the Coast Guard. I'm on the water. It's a prominent point. It was traditionally a manned tower uh, to stand watch, to look out for, you know, look out for, for dangers. Right. Um, so it didn't really occur to me, uh, my love for the lighthouses, until I probably joined the Coast Guard. Um, and, and probably several years after, because you see young Coastie, you really don't kind of just get in the realm of, of what life is all about being in the military. Uh, the Coast Guard certainly has a, a long, proud history managing our, our lighthouses and navigational aids. That's kind of been changing and evolving uh, for a while now. Uh, the Coast Guard ace and navigation teams uh, still maintain the automated lights and fog signals, but the care of actually uh, t- taking care of the physical structures for a number of years now has, has been gradually transferred to nonprofit organizations, various other entities. Do you have any thoughts about how that process has evolved? Well, the fact that we have nonprofits and, and other state and federal agencies that are willing to step up is, is phenomenal. I think we did a real good job taking care of lighthouses up, up until the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then when we started modernizing them, when that money pulled away, I think, unfortunately, the uh, logistics officers and the civil engineering unit type that were kind of in charge of the structures and even the aids and navigation teams uh, went from being carpenters and plumbers and fixing windows to, oh, now I just need to make sure that this light is winking and blinking uh, or the fog signal is properly sounding. And so slowly our lighthouses, as we can show by some several of them, have started deteriorating. Uh, and as we fast forward to this decade, uh, we still have individuals that uh, have to make that shell game of where the money needs to go. Uh, and unfortunately, because a lighthouse is a structure, it falls under a pot of money, which is the exact same pot of money that we would do boat docks, hangers for the aircraft, uh, housing, military housing. We don't have a lot of them, uh, but most of them are decades old and have a lot of problems with asbestos lead-based con- products, just like the lighthouses do. So it's it's hard for the new coasties of today, the new officers that sit and have to make these decisions to say, no, the lighthouse needs to get $100,000 or $1.1 million uh, project done on it when we have a $2 million hangar that's falling down. So the fact that we've been able to partner with these agencies and that we've done a phenomenal job here in Washington, and I know New England, California has got a good group um, to, to get these folks into these sites, give them full control for, so they can actively gr- seek grant money, fundraising, stuff that the active duty military, we can't fundraise for this stuff. And in my three years, last three years as the ATON officer, I was able to find that some of the money um, that was going to our AIDS navigation team here in Seattle, uh, they thought was for a different uh, pot of money when it was actually indeed for the upkeep of the structures of the 14 lighthouses that they, they maintain. And uh, of those 14 lighthouses, 11 of them have an organization, as you had mentioned, or state agency. So that pot of money really only had to focus on just a few lighthouses. So um, we've been able to get some projects going, some scope of works done to get some paint jobs done, windows replaced, doors fixed. Um, and so hopefully we can uh, continue that as the, as the years go on. What about changing technology? Of course, uh, it's always evolving. And these days, you know, we've been moving uh, with the lights themselves more into LED technology with the VLB 44s, especially a lot of the offshore lights, solar powered LEDs, that kind of thing. How has that changed the Coast Guard's ACE and navigation responsibilities? 
has that made things easier or just different or just could you say a little bit about how that's affected I, it's a it's a game changer when it comes to finances and mm-hmm. operations it's dramatically reduced our, our need to go out and service and get large cutters underway to service what might be a light bulb mm-hmm. um, cost for cost uh, by the time you swap out all of the equipment needed for an old incandescent beacon or a buoy uh, for the modern technology LEDs it's about a wash so you got about a thousand dollars worth of battery solar panels um, you know a 155 plastic lens with a 6p in there to a 800 to a thousand dollar Carmana or a Tidelands uh, structure and it's all self-contained so uh, cost-wise for the equipment's pretty much a wash but we're drastically increasing what we call service intervals so instead of having to go visit and aid every quarter uh, or every year, depending on what it is, it could be now we're, we're doubling that. Um, and so that's less time on the water. That's less fuel. That's less wear and tear on the boat, less wear and tear on the, on the vehicles that we're driving to these lighthouses, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the LED technologies. I'm, I'm glad we've embraced it. In my opinion, it's, it's other than Fresnel lenses, it is a much brilliant, brighter light. So when you're coming up upon a channel and you see a, a string of gated pair of buoys, uh, you can pick out the LEDs because mm-hmm. they're that much brighter. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's that's a benefit to the Mariner. Yeah. It's a different quality of light. It's a, it's a, that sort of colder, bluish kind of light. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Lights. And we typically use that, the, that, that mm-hmm. what do they call it? The cool white, not the soft white. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a, a brighter white, a wider white. Right. Uh, and it's it, a little bit more intense. Yeah, yeah, but it's as bright. There's no yes. doubt about that. Uh, one of the common questions that I get asked a lot, like when I, if I do a lecture about lighthouses and I ask for questions at the end, invariably somebody asks, do people still use lighthouses? You know, somebody will ask, uh, do mariners still rely on lighthouses for navigation? Uh, what is your view of the role of lighthouses in navigation today? Well, 100 years ago, the lighthouse might have been that first spot of land where they were able to tell where they were at. Um, and as we all know, every lighthouse is going to have its own unique characteristics, either color, size, uh, but then it's flash characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. So if you were to come across, uh, you know, the coast of Washington um, 100 years ago, you would be, is that Cape Flattery or is that uh, Destruction Island? And the characteristics would tell you, even though they're hundreds of miles apart. Now we come to the modern age, uh, we still have flash characteristics. Uh, and we still have a, a day mark, the color and shape of the lighthouse itself. But now we've got radar, we've got GPS, uh, we've got technology that's that's uh, wouldn't necessarily remove the need for the lighthouse because, as we all know, technology fails. So as a former CEO of a ship, sure, we're going to train on the digital age, but my crew is also going to be able to use an Allidade and actually shoot a line of position at that lighthouse, which doesn't move. So it is a fixed position. So I can get a line of position. And if I can get a number of other fixed positions, whether it be a peak of a mountain or a tower or, or something, we can ascertain exactly where the ship is it, it, down to you know hundreds of yards accuracy. So even though the lighthouse is maybe not that, that first thing they see or the first thing they're currently using to, to make landfall or to find the channel or find that tip of, the, of that, uh, that land, um, it's still poses a very valid need for navigation as a backup. And there's still people out there that don't have radars. There's still people out there that may be using their phones uh, as, as navigational, and, and that's not ideal. 
if they are sitting in the middle of Straits of Juan Fuca and they look north and see Cattle Point or Lime Kiln, um, or in that case, you probably see both of them, they pretty much know where they're at on a clear day. Uh, so it's still a need. It does, as you just pointed out, poses a great opportunity for tourism uh, and brings people to the community to see these these phenomenal structures. But from an A's navigation standpoint, uh, they're still needed. Um, and again, the, the term aid to navigation, it's not the one and only be-all technology that you're going to use. It's right. just one of the tools, one of the pieces of the puzzle to help a mariner know exactly where they're at and where they're going to go. And let's talk for a minute about sound signals or foghorns, as they're usually referred to. Do they still play a role in navigation? Well, similarly, like I had mentioned, uh, with lighthouses, uh, you know, several decades ago, sound signals might have been the difference between a boat running aground or not running aground. Um, we have, because of our automation of lighthouses and the fact that they're not no longer manned, there's not a human decision uh, on whether a fog signal be, should be sounding or not, the Coast Guard has had a, a very difficult time uh, identifying a technology that will turn a sound signal on at the appropriate time and even more so turn it off. Uh, so 30 years ago, we came up with a piece of equipment called a VM, VM1000, which is basically just a strobe light and two lenses. And, and it did a really great job of identifying the water molecules from fog or low visibility. And it would refract back into the other lens and say, hey, it's foggy. Let's turn this light on or the sound signal on. It worked great, but it always had problems turning off. And so even back in the days when I was the OIC uh, at Ant Humboldt Bay, we would get phone calls all the time about a sound signal going, and it's foggy. No, it's not foggy. Like, here's a picture, or, or you know, look at the news. It's gorgeous outside. So it, the Coast Guard's always had that problem with sound signals. So uh, the, there's still a need for it. Uh, again, that, if that one mariner, whether it be somebody on a kayak or a stand-up paddle boat, or whether it be a, a, a ferry passing through, if they need to know where they're at because of the fog, that one signal might be that added aid to navigation that says, okay, I just heard it off my starboard quarter. My technology is telling me here, and that just validated that my te technology is correct because I've always trained my folks when you, you give me a deck watch officer on a ship is trust your own instincts, your own eyes, your own ears, before you trust the piece of equipment that you're looking at. Um, and that's that's that audible sound that says, yes, I've got a sound signal over there. Um, so currently our sound signals, almost all of them, are um, use an MRAS system where you just get on a particular frequency on a, a marine band radio, click it X amount of times, uh, and it will continuously sound for 30 minutes. Um, and so if you know there's a sound signal in the area and you want to use that aid, it's there for you. It's a viable tool. Mm -hmm. um, and with the MRAS system, uh, again, like LEDs, it's kind of allowed us to get something a little, it's got a little bit more redundancy built into it. So again, it's a piece, it's, 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 it's heritage. Yeah. Um, as you may not know, the uh, larger buoys all have their own sound signals as well. So, uh, you know, an eight footer or a nine footer might have a tube down the center of the buoy uh, with a whistle. And as it goes up and down in the waves, the water pressure sucks air and creates a whistle. And then we have gongs and we have bells, you know, clankers as the buoys. So the sound signals are not going away. And that's just that one added piece for the mariner to, to confirm that's where they are. So I don't see sound signals. I mean, we've reduced them drastically simply because of technology. Yeah. Um, but I think we're probably down to the, the sound signals that are currently in existence uh, are probably going to stay. 
Can you say a bit about your new position as a waterways management specialist? And again, uh, just to reiterate, we're recording this interview in mid-January 2019 during the federal shutdown. And by the time people are hearing this, I sure hope the federal shutdown is way behind us. I really, yeah, really I, hope I hope so. I'm sitting at a desk at Secretary of Town in April. <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope so. But can you say a little bit about what this uh, position entails? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as my previous position as an active duty chief warrant officer, aids and navigation officer, lighthouse coordinator, I work for the waterways management division for Sector Puget Sound. So, uh, you know, half of my duties was... Uh, say, the waterways mission. And that waterways mission is essentially uh, the fair and equitable use of all the waterways within Sector Puget Sound, um, which is the northern half of uh, Washington, Straits of Juan of Fuca, Puget Sound, Straits, uh, San Juan Islands, and actually all the way out to Montana. So the northern half of Columbia River also falls within our AOR. Um, and, and in that mission set, um, we manage uh, security zones, safety zones. We help manage all vessel traffic. So the vessel traffic service out of Seattle, which is a cooperative uh, agency with Canada, we manage the flow of all commercial traffic coming into Straits of Juan de Fuca for both Canadian and Washington ports uh, that falls under waterway management. So we do coordination with the Canadians, coordination with the, with the port partners, uh, Port of Seattle, Port of Everett, Port of Tacoma, to make sure their needs are being met, making sure the statutory requirements are being met. Uh, we are active members in the uh, Harbor Safety Committee um, within Puget Sound. Uh, we also participate in a uh, joint Harbor Safety Committee meeting with Canada as well because we share the waterway. Um, one of my other duties uh, will also include the continued relationship with the uh, native tribes here in Washington. Um, we have several treaty tribes that have a, a huge impact on the water. Uh, they're, the treaties that were granted back in 1854-1857 timeframe uh, included their ability to exercise their uh, usual rights uh, on the water. Uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, commerce commercial activity, even private citizens' activity may impact with the ability for the, the tribes to, to do what they need to do that they've traditionally done for thousands of years. So that's also going to be a huge piece of, of my, my job as a waterways management specialist, liaison with the, the tribes, uh, and try to find that happy medium and that, that cooperation, the co-manager of that waterway. Other than that, uh, Sector Puget Sound, the captain of the port there in Sector Puget Sound has a number of hats that they wear. Um, and um, the fact that I was able to be hired in in a waterway management piece kind of keeps me in the realm of being a subject matter expert uh, in Coast Guard operations, AIDS navigation operations, search and rescue, law enforcement. Uh, we do a lot of uh, U.S. Navy escorts in the area, and I've had a lot of experience doing that with my time on the Cutter Sea Fox. Um, so I'm really just bringing my wealth of knowledge, my corporate knowledge of the Coast Guard, my corporate knowledge and, and the area knowledge. Uh, and it's just I think it's just going to be a huge piece that's going to benefit Sector Puget Sound. And in turn, it's a job that I enjoy doing. So uh, when that opportunity was presented for me to uh, possibly take on this job, I I literally jumped ship. I retired early and uh, and uh, interviewed and successfully landed the job. And you get to stay in this beautiful area. I If things work out well, I'll go back to the same desk. So uh, yes, I will be staying in the area. We want to remind listeners about a special offer in the U.S. Lighthouse Society's online gift shop. In the online gift shop, you can find lighthouse books, maps, collectibles, t-shirts, and baseball caps, and more. 
And until August 19th, you can get 10% off your purchase. Just go to uslhs.org and click on Shop. Then enter this coupon code when you place an order. The coupon is Lighthearted1. That's L-I-G-H-T-H-E-A-R-T-E-D-1. All uppercase letters. And that will give you 10% off your purchase through August 19th. Again, enter the coupon code LIGHTHEARTED1 in the U.S. Lighthouse Society's online gift shop. That brings us to an end of another episode of Lighthearted. Thanks to all the volunteers and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. And thanks to everyone everywhere who works for Lighthouse Preservation. A reminder, please go to GoFundMe.com and check out the page for the Thomas Point Shoal Lighthouse fundraising effort. Funds are urgently needed for restoration. And of course, go to USLHS.org for more information on the U.S. Lighthouse Society, its domestic and international group tours, and all the other great things the Society has to offer. And of course, everybody, thanks for listening. And keep a good light. Shine, let it shine